don't think we should see each other anymore. <laughs> You're great, but I I'm, I'm riddled with personal problems. What's wrong? What did I do? No, nothing. It it's not you. It it's me. I, I have a fear of commitment. I don't know how to love. <laughs> you hate my earrings, don't you? No, no. And you didn't comment on the chopsticks. I love the chopsticks. I, I personally prefer a fork, but they look very nice. <laughs> You're not telling me the truth. I must have done something. Well, I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Ivan. Hello, Hello Stacey. Boyos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boyos. Welcome to another episode of Bidwabask. This is a podcast where we talk about the secondary characters from the greatest sitcom of all time, if not the greatest show of all time, Seinfeld. And this week, Stephen, we are going to season three to talk about the second episode of that season, The Truth. That's right. Uh, we'll be talking about papier-mâché and other pretentious things. Um, <laughs> chopsticks. Chopsticks. Chopsticks, yes. Yes, uh, whether we prefer forks instead. And mm. uh, if you're an ongoing listener of the show, you would have heard Stacey's voice before. Hello. That's me. Yeah, welcome back, Stace. Thank you. Coming to you from my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Is that where you keep the chopsticks? Yes, yes. My yes. collection of papier-mâché hats, my chopsticks, my dangly earrings, and it's also where I come to write my poetry. <laughs> Very nice. So away from the burnt out building at the docks, so you mm. go there instead. Yeah, that's the office. This is the home office. <laughs> nice. <laughs> if, if you want to send us pretentious poetry, you can email bidwabaspodcast at gmail.com. We're on social media. You'll find all those details in our show notes, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. You can listen to all of our previous podcasts on whatever your podcast app is of choice. And if you want to rate us or review us, that would be amazing. And finally, you can support us financially too. Yes, we are on PayPal and also on Patreon. And on Patreon, you do get early access to this episode as well as access to our bonus podcasts, Curbcast, our Curb Your Enthusiasm review podcast, and our temporarily uh, halted season 11 where we talk about or we come up with modern episodes of Seinfeld set over 20 years after the events of the finale. So Stephen and I write the plot. We bring back some old secondary characters, bring in some new secondary characters and uh, have a bit of fun with those. And a uh, big thanks to our current patrons as a Recording Holly, Nakia, Neil, and Jeff. So thank you so much for your donations and you get all those goodies. So if you want to join them, patreon.com forward slash bidwabask. That's right. And if you want to check out our Facebook group, Seinfeldisms, we are the biggest Facebook group uh, for Seinfeld. We're at about 85,000 members now, which is amazing. Woohoo. Uh, it just uh, keeps it's growing. Been... It's so wonderful. I know. We're getting about three or 4,000 members a week, which is just absolutely Wow. Awesome. And, uh, Mind-blowing. Yeah, we've got some really cool things in the works. Um, they'll be reveal uh, revealed over the next couple of weeks. So, uh, yeah, just type Seinfeldisms into Facebook to check it all out. Yes, if you do follow Seinfeldisms and you listen to us, you know, you're, you're doubly awesome. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth. <laughs> and, that, and that's the truth. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> Ain't that the truth? You want the truth? Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of Seinfeldisms, uh, you two, uh, I guess uh, we can talk about some Seinfeldisms in our lives. So, uh, Stephen, first of all, what's happened to you in the world of Seinfeld in your life, buddy? First time in quite a while, nothing Seinfeld-related has happened in my real life. The last week or so oh. has been especially uh, Seinfeld-free, which is sad, but, uh, you know, it happens from time to time, especially during lockdown. What about you? No, nothing really, unfortunately. Uh, like you and Stacey with lockdown, uh, yeah, not much has really happened. I mean, what, like we've gone for walks and what to go to get coffee and stuff, and that's really all we've really done, haven't we? So no, I can't really can't really make anything Seinfeld related. But Stacey, I guess you could probably bring this one home. Do you have any Seinfeldisms since you've uh, been with us? Uh, <laughs> You're try trying to figure it out. I'm too. just like, yeah, I'm just like racking my brain. I don't really think so, other than the fact that I've recently started making bagels. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's not really Seinfeld related at all, but you know, we're drawing pretty long bows in the lockdown days. So well, you've gone on strike after trying to cook them. You're like, after a week, you're like, I can't do this. I'm on strike. Well, like my last time I had a Seinfeldism, I'd been at a bagel shop, which provided me my Seinfeldism because they had the Kramer poster. But then that bagel shop that I love happened to be outside my five kilometer radius. And that prompted me to start making my own bagels. So now I've cut out the middleman and I'm just making my own bagels. But I don't know that you could necessarily say that. Well, I guess it's kind of Seinfeld related in a very loose sense. 
Well, yeah, bagels yeah. were prominent in the episode The Strike from Season 9, so I yeah. used to work for H&H Bagels, so there you go. Yes. You're following in his well, footsteps. I am now a qualified bagel maker following in Kramer's distinguished footsteps. No bagel, no bagel, no bagel, no bagel. <laughs> so, yeah, that's about as close as I got. Considering we don't have any other Seinfeldisms for this week, that will do, I think. Yay! Uh, we'll take it. <laughs> Yay. We do have some Seinfeld news, though. A bit of slim pickings this week. I uh, like the last couple of weeks, but um, through the week, Jerry Seinfeld contributed, I guess, his cachet or his pull. As we reported a couple of weeks ago, there was an article that uh, it was an op-ed, actually, in I think the New York Times that Jerry Seinfeld put out, basically calling on the residents of New York to rebuild the uh, decimated comedy scene and entertainment scene at large because of COVID-19. Uh, and that was in response to an article that came out, uh, I think, earlier in the year more or less uh, mourning the loss of of said uh, entertainment and especially comedy scenes. And sort of in light of that, or as an extension of that, through the week, there was a little, I guess you call it like a little event at the Gotham Comedy Club in Chelsea in New York. And Senator Chuck Schumer, who's a well-known politician in uh, New York, has been a New York, I think a senator for New York for decades. Uh, and he basically used it as a promotional opportunity to push for a new act. And it's called the Save Our Stages Act. And if it's passed through US Congress, it would provide $10 billion to uh, oh. live entertainment venues across the country. Obviously, that wow. absolutely. Yeah, obviously, you know, comedy venues, music venues, any sort of like entertainment venue, big or small, has been absolutely decimated uh, in the last six months. Uh, and Chuck Schumer is like a working class sort of politician. I think he's a, a sort of like a working class Democrat. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a, a champion. Of, of small business and medium business. And uh, as part of that little event to promote the act and get some public support, Jerry Seinfeld came down and uh, he gave a little speech. You can check it out on YouTube. And uh, he, you know, he, he more or less repeated the sentiments of his article that I mentioned before, you know, calling on New Yorkers to really get behind comedy clubs when it's obviously safe to do so and uh, really championing the uh, the Save Our Stages Act that Chuck Schumer is really trying to push through Congress. No word on, you know, whether it has support across the across the the board, but uh, hopefully it does because, uh, you know, those small businesses are the, the lifeblood of New York and, you know, pretty much every city, not just in America, but all over the world. So, uh, yeah, a cool little thing that Jerry did and hopefully it's successful. Absolutely, because when we interviewed Kenny Kramer a few weeks ago, Steve, he did mention that a lot of businesses in New York were uh, struggling, especially small businesses, restaurants and stuff. And uh, I think you said like 30 to 40% of all restaurants in New York closed down. Yeah, and a lot of those won't come back. It'll be similar here with Melbourne. You know, I mean, it was a struggle after the first lockdown, but after our second lockdown, which we're sort of just at the end of inter like at the end of the first phase of that lockdown you know that was sort of the death blow unfortunately for a lot of restaurants so death yeah. blow death yeah blow. i mean yeah, oh, there you go yeah. we get to see the final death blow <laughs> we do final death blow this this is not the death blow that we want though um, no. Yeah, and, and I do remember Kenny also saying that, you know, well, he had to put his bus tour, you know, on hold and he probably won't return to it because he doesn't see the business potentially being viable ever again, at least for years and years and years. And he is getting on a bit. So, yeah, yeah. Um, lots of uh, unfortunate casualties. Mm, yeah, definitely. Very sad. But anyway, yeah, hopefully uh, there's some, um, hopefully it does pass. The, the money does come through. I wonder if um, Jerry's fronting any of that because $10 billion is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Probably not 10 billion. I don't think he's worth that Gosh, much. Gosh, no. But like, <laughs> no. Where, where on earth are the American government going to get that from? Oh, who well, knows? <laughs> that's a story for another time. $27 trillion of debt, 10 billion is nothing, really. Yeah, I, mean, I guess. You've know, yeah, you got to spend money to regenerate the economy to make money again. So it's sort of a... That is very yeah, true. Spend, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe they'll tax the rich. Maybe they'll tax Jerry to pay for the <laughs> Tax Jerry. <laughs> Jerry, like, Jerry should have kept his I mouth meant. shut. <laughs> that's yeah. not what I meant. <laughs> I was just making yeah. a joke. <laughs> very, very I'm a comedian. Action. Like I can imagine, like a, a an act that passes Congress, you know, is like really long, like pages and pages and pages, and it's probably like really dry political legalese. You know, buried in there, there's probably some obscure clause that actually says to fund this, we will tax Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, <laughs> I should have read it before I supported it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. No. So, uh, yeah, that's all the Seinfeld news for the week. Cool. Very short introduction to this episode, and uh, very it's going to be a very short episode, I think, guys. I think we're only talking about one or two secondary characters today. We have George's episode girlfriend, Patrice, who's uh, quite colourful, we talked about off-air <laughs> before we started recording, and uh, a bit about Tina, who we've spoken about in the past as well. This is her second of three appearances on the show. Mm. That's right. Why don't we uh, take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about those secondary characters. Hi, this is Zach. And Aaron from Seinfeld Law. And uh, you are listening to But I Don't Want to Be a Secondary Character. 
The Truth is from Season 3, Episode 2, and this one first aired in the US on September 25th, 1991, directed by David Steinberg and written by Elaine Pope. In this episode, Jerry is being ordered by the IRS, but everything is in hand as George's new girlfriend Patrice, Valerie Mahaffey, is an accountant and former IRS auditor and that she has agreed to help him out. Unfortunately, George isn't too happy with the relationship, and when she asks him to tell her the truth, about how he feels, he obliges. You're pretentious. <laughs> it's the earrings, but it's so much it's, more. It's so much more. You called my doorman Sammy Samuel, but you had to say uh, uh, Samuel, but you said Samuel. Samuel. He just really goes off, doesn't he? He really yeah. loses it in true Costanza fashion. Yeah. He does. Yeah, he, uh, he explodes like Krakatoa. Yeah. <laughs> much like the uh, Volcano Fund. It much explodes. Like, much like the poor Krakatoan. <laughs> the poor Krakatoan. I'm thinking only for the poor Krakatoan. <laughs> <laughs> Their breakup leads Patrice to a residential depression clinic, and Jerry is desperate to get his tax receipts back. Elaine, meanwhile, is having to put up with Kramer, who is dating her roommate Tina, played by Siobhan Fallon Hogan. She's particularly upset by the fact that Kramer accidentally saw her naked. And uh, besides Patrice and Tina, no other secondary characters. It's one of those other episodes, Stephen, where uh, uh, there's not too many secondary characters to talk about. We don't come across too many. Yeah, I think the secondary characters in this episode, Patrice especially, were so strong that they kind of didn't need any she carries mm. the you know normally the the weight of secondary characters is carried by you know two or three and maybe like a, a, a consistent, like a repeated secondary character, but Patrice was so good. It, it didn't feel like it was thin. It still felt mm. substantial when it comes to secondary characters because she was so good. She was a very, very well done three-dimensional character. Yeah, no, a lot a lot to uh, talk about. Before we do, uh, let's talk a bit about the episode trivia. What do you have? Uh, well, I have uh, Kramer raises money for the Krakatoa Relief Fund, and uh, ironically enough, uh, Valerie McAfee, who I mentioned plays Patrice, she was born in Sumatra in Indonesia. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yes, I Ironically enough. What a pretentious uh, snippet of info for that actor. <laughs> <laughs> pretentious. Well, like it's not super common to have, you know, someone. Well, I mean, I was assuming that she's an American actor, but that could be she incorrect. Is, yes. She is, right. No, no, she's American, but she was born in Indonesia, yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, like yeah, that's a yeah. fairly, uh, you know, unique and an exotic uh, history mm. to have. Yeah, I know. It's like me saying I was born in Madagascar or something. Mm. Quite quite exotic. Yeah, you don't get too many people born uh, in exotic countries like that or exotic parts of the world. Mm. Maybe mm. when they wrote the script, you know, it was a, a different country, but when they cast her and they found out about her Indonesian, uh, you know, that she was born in Indonesia, they changed it to Krakatoa. Maybe. Well, I don't know exactly. Like, I don't know if that was because of that or it was just a coincidence. I didn't read up on that. Probably just yeah. a coincidence. A couple of other bits of trivia. This is actually the first episode written by... Um, Elaine Pope, who would go on to write uh, many more episodes after this one. So uh, a strong start. Oh, very strong start. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty good one to get on the board. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's also the first episode of the show that wasn't directed by uh, Tom Sharonis. So he did all of season one and two. But uh, as you mentioned before, this episode was directed by... David Steinberg. Yeah, so that's his first episode. And then uh, from here on in, you know, it would uh, swap between Tom Sharon and David Steinberg and a couple of others, a couple of other directors. So, yeah. And then Andy Ackerman would uh, take it home from about season six onwards. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I just couple more. So George's breakup line, it's not you, it's me, makes its first appearance in the episode. Pretty well known George Costanzaism. <laughs> it's not you, it's me. I invented it's not you, it's me. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Kramer's idea to turn the windshield he found into a coffee table anticipates his future idea of publishing a book about coffee tables in season oh. five. I never put those pieces together before. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the deadly coffee table is a premonition as to what he will become. <laughs> it's funny that they don't actually reference the fact that he, you know, because obviously like both he and Tina are um, injured in the, oh, well, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that that is never referenced around the time that he's writing the coffee table book because I feel like that would be a funny little gag, you know, to his claim to uh, authority on coffee tables is that, you know, he once 
made and then fell through his own coffee table. Yeah, one of the rare times, like Seinfeld's really good at referencing old episodes when it's relevant and really good at continuity. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those mm. rare times that they missed out on a really good, mm. you know, deep, a deep reference that would have, uh, you know, sort of been a, a nod. A callback. Or, yeah, to, to yeah. a previous episode that would have, uh, you know. Yeah, like he could have showed Kathy Lee and Regis his scar from having fallen through his invisible coffee table or something. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Mm. You know, so. That's true. Maybe, maybe it was too traumatic and he just wanted to leave it in the past with uh, uh-huh. Tina. <laughs> with Tina, yeah, because yeah, because I think he doesn't. I, I think Tina actually appears in the uh, the opposite, the season five finale. It's her final appearance, but Kramer and her obviously aren't seeing each other. Yeah, obviously, uh, she's probably a bit upset with Kramer after you know, even though it wasn't, involved, <laughs> it was still uh, ending up in the ICU or whatever she did in yeah, hospital. Probably put off by Kramer after uh, crashing into his coffee table and ending up in the hospital. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure she she uh, was way worse off than him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> the final trivia point I have is that when you see Patrice leaving Monks after uh, George lays into her, uh, you see her put a pepper grinder and a container from the table into her bag, suggesting okay. a bit of a klepto. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe she bought her own bag and pepper grinder for some reason and she's just putting them back in a bag. But a, an interesting little uh, characteristic that, um, mm. you know, the rest of the episode. But, yeah, uh, I didn't George even saw. pick up on that. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't either. I didn't notice it until I saw um, the trivia point and then I mm. rewatched And, yeah, you just see it <laughs> as she's um, – as George is offering to walk her back to her office and she's, you know, obviously a bit upset about George's outburst. She says, uh, you know, I prefer to, to go back to the office alone. You can mm. see her just quickly put a pepper grinder in a little container as well back in a bag. So, Well, maybe we can try and incorporate that into her character when we talk about her. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Come up well, with an idea, <laughs> hypothetical. True. Well, speaking of, that's a nice segue. Why don't we just launch into Patrice? Sure. Uh, played by American actress Valerie Mahaffey. Uh, she was born, like I mentioned before, in Sumatra in Indonesia. Uh, she's most famous for her Emmy-nominated role as the character Eve in the TV show Northern Exposure. Uh, she's also appeared in the films Seabiscuit and Sully. And uh, I guess we can probably establish that she has a history of mental illness. She's probably had a couple of nervous breakdowns in her lifetime and George tips her over the edge mm-hmm. and she has another nervous breakdown. I mean, I think anyone dating George would be, you know, uh, inclined to be tipped over the edge in one way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah. As he does yeah. himself reference, he's like, I've turned someone to lesbianism before, but, you know, never a mental institution. And that's also a nice uh, a nice reference to Susan because Susan uh, ends up dating a woman after George breaks up with, or Susan breaks up with George. So uh, there you go. It's the second time that he's converted someone to lesbianism. <laughs> Probably even more than two, I would take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah, half of New York maybe, who knows. <laughs> but, yeah, but Patricia, Patrice, yeah, I, I feel like she's really intelligent. I think she's really mm. good at her job. Uh, she is like an accountant slash auditor. Um, I feel like she's really supportive of like the little guy. Um, I feel mm. like maybe when she worked at the IRS, she was really well qualified to be working for that department or the, that organization. But I feel like maybe the IRS, well, from my understanding, it's kind of like our ATO, Australian Tax mm-hmm. Office, I suppose. They, they collect tax revenue. But the, like, I can't speak about the IRS because I'm not American and don't pay taxes in the US, but in the ATO, they kind of have a reputation for being a bit too heavy handed when it comes to collecting tax. And there's always like a negative about the ATO. So whenever, you know, you have to deal with them, usually it's like you owe them money or you got to follow up on something or you might be audited much like Jerry is. And I feel like maybe Patrice had good intentions to be in the accounting field and maybe the IRS, she probably felt it was too heavy handed in their approaches. And she probably didn't like the idea of having to like audit, you know, other people or workers who may have, you know, done their tax return wrong or something. So she probably decided, you know what, I'm just going to help the guy try and get the best possible tax refunds they can get and uh, try and, you know, get them in the least amount of trouble as possible. I would agree with that. I think, um, you know, beyond her sort of motivation or her ethics, I think she's just probably over the bureaucracy and just like the dry corporate culture of something like the IRS. You know, she's, yeah. like she's obviously a very creative woman. Um, she talks about how everyone in her family is very creative. She's very uh, expressive in, in how she dresses and, you know, her accessories and all that she's you know she's quite a quirky you know and I don't mean this in a bad way but an eccentric woman at least in terms of her style and outward presentation and I just don't think that that personality would mesh very well with something as bureaucratic and dry as the IRS for very long so yeah I think I think it's a combination of yeah being a bit disheartened over what she has to do for the IRS and also just burnout or just getting sick of the the repression of who she is in a job like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. She's leaning into the artistic side and, you know, I think being an accountant that kind of implies that she's sensible. 
So mm. maybe, you know, she does say that she's concentrating on her on her artistic creative side. So I think she's sensible and level-headed enough to not just quit the IRS one day and uh, and and try and make a career out of being a creative person. I think she's slowly building up the creative income. And when it's replacing a current income, then she would quit. I think she's, even mm-hmm. though she's quite creative and expressive and quirky, I still think she's got that more sensible side where she wouldn't just throw it all throw it all away and take that risk. Mm, yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, but yeah, but like, like I said, I feel like that maybe she wants to help like the little guys. You know how sometimes you might get lawyers who might want to specifically work with like refugees, asylum seekers, you know, people who are, who are downtrodden. I think she probably has that mentality as well. She probably doesn't want to deal with, you know, yeah, like you said, bu- dry bureaucratic processes. Yeah. What do you think, Stace? Sorry, we've been doing all the talking. What do you think? <laughs> no, Stace okay. will come in with her with her massive curveball. <laughs> yeah. Well, usually um, you have usually you have fantastic hypotheses. I so the first difference I think in the way that I went with the character Patrice is that I thought from the dialogue in the show that she had previously worked for the IRS had left them and was now just practicing as an accountant. So potentially we're Mm. looking at sort of as the both of you have already like, you know, posited, but you know, so previously she worked with the IRS. That was probably a high level job, perhaps, as you said, having to audit people, um, Mm. you know, feeling like she was having to maintain standards that she didn't agree with. And, you know, maybe just, you know, the pressure of that government and official kind of office was too much for her. And she maybe had her first, you know, um, her first sort of experience with needing to have time off, having a bit of a breakdown, you know, potentially having burnout, as we've already sort of discussed. And so from there, she went from, you know, working for the IRS to just being a private accountant, because my sense in the episode is that she's not currently working with the IRS. She's moved. And obviously, you know, like the attire that she's wearing on that lunch date with George with the chopsticks and the um the beautiful you know silk dress probably not going back to the IRS um <laughs> dress like that you never know but that was my guess especially in the 90s so I was thinking that she'd sort of you know had her earlier career as a high flying probably quite high achieving you know audit officer perhaps in the IRS and is then, yeah, sort of discovering this creative expression self and sort of, as you were saying, Stephen, like slowly working her way towards what she wants as her artistic career and just being able to exclusively, you know, be a creative, but is sort of slowly transitioning out of the accounting field and, and more into the arts. And I think the points that you were making, Ivan, about her sort of having the backs of the little guys or, or wanting to, you know, like stand up for what's right. I think, you know, that seems even in the fact that George says, you know, you called my doorman Samuel instead of just Sammy. So she sort of seems to give people like a high degree of dignity and respect. You know, it seems like she's probably a fairly warm, caring person. Mm, and yeah. even the way that uh, you know, when when they first go to visit her in the um, in the like respite center or you know mental mental health center, initially she's quite suspicious of Jerry. She's like, "Who are you? Why are you here?" And yeah. then once he sort of mentions the papers, she's like, "Oh, you're the Jerome with the tax problem." <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah I- she doesn't call him Jerry. She no, calls him Jerome. Yeah, Jerome. But she does very quickly sort of say, oh, I'd be happy to help if you can just get me copies. So even though, you know, George is his friend and George is obviously a dickhead, you know, she's still (laughs) willing to help Jerry. Um, And even when she's, you know, in an inpatient facility, like she still seems more than happy to, to help others, even when she's got her own trials on her plate. So to me, she seems like a pretty, yeah, kind of warm but kooky and, yeah, like... There's definitely elements of her being a bit of a pretentious, you know, uh, maybe has, uh, what's the term, like being well-to-do or having airs and graces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. It does seem a bit like slightly pompous, but yeah. anyone, anyone who's has any whiff of formality or quirk would come across as pretentious to George because he's quite lowbrow. You know, he likes mm. he likes chocolate sundaes on his face and baseball. Like he's not, mm. he's not a highbrow person. He has no interest in art or... Like the only no. the only time art becomes no. useful to him is when he takes we did last week uh, the uh, the bookstore you know when he takes an art mm-hmm. book into the toilet <laughs> so like mm. that's that's the only time art has been appreciated by him and it wasn't even he when he's in the bathroom lack of um you know and there's also another episode where he says 
he offers to buy a painting from Jerry's girlfriend who's a painter. Yeah. But then he In the note, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't The episode actually before wanna... this one, I think. No. Oh, no, not the note. Sorry, it was the um, the letter. That's the one. Mm. Yeah. 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 He has no appreciation for art or creative pursuits. No, no, <laughs> no he doesn't care. Right. Like, even, even trying to read Breakfast at Tiffany's, he won't read a 90-page book. He'll watch <laughs> the movie. If I I met Patrice in real life and, you know, she spoke to me as she does to George and to everyone else, I would probably think, oh, well, you you are a bit quirky and, you know, you are a bit uh, maybe more expressive or verbose than other people. Mm. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't build up resentment to the point of exploding at her. I would just accept Mm. it just think well you're a bit more quirky than other people but i, I wouldn't be off put, uh, put off i kept i said that last week i wouldn't be put on you did off put yes yeah, I, kept, I kept saying off put uh i wouldn't I've be got put mental off. dyslexia i do i do i do yeah so i think i think to anyone uh, anyone to george like her comes across as way more pretentious than she would to you know us or anyone else really so mm. Yeah. yeah i think the definitely. interesting thing to me is that you know in one way she seems like a fairly kind of you know put together confident she's obviously quite accomplished she's got you know this career behind her she also has you know creative interests and is pursuing her passions in art and yet she's still you know as soon as george sort of says that they need to have a chat and that he wants to break up with her she immediately jumps to like oh i did something wrong you know yeah. like why do we, why won't you tell me oh you hate my earrings oh you didn't talk about the chopsticks like blah 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 like I was kind of I was kind of surprised that you know someone who on paper seems to be quite a you know mature high achieving um, adult sort of seemed so quick to need that validation from someone as unrefined as George Costanza Mm, yeah Yeah. I suppose that's (laughs) the character yeah, I think I think her, uh, you know, externally, yeah, she's quite accomplished and, and, mm. and successful. But internally, I think there's quite a bit of fragility and insecurity there. Yeah, um, I mean, that's demonstrated yeah. by the fact that as soon as you know George goes there and very obviously, uh, you know, and transparently apologizes, just so that she uh, he gets back on her good side to so that she can do his his um so that she can do Jerry's taxes you know she's immediately interested in george again Mm. she's like really you want to get back Mm. to me so i think maybe maybe she's like maybe she's just used to men not treating her very well so that's just Mm. the standard even though she expects very high things for herself and she those standards in terms of the the men that she dates any sort of validation even after Mm. they've just dumped on her like george has and sent her to a uh, a depression clinic uh woodhaven that's the name of it yeah woodhaven yeah i I think she just has high expectations of herself but low expectations of relationships of others you know, of others. You know, probably yeah. just I picked up that as well, Stace, that she has mm. you know, she's very well put together externally but internally. Very articulate just, and she stands yeah. up for herself as well, you know. And it, it does. I find it kind of interesting that she ends up in the depression clinic because the way that the character is acted, you know, she actually seems quite and I guess that's just, you know, the writing of the show. But, you know, she packs her things up at the table and even though, yeah, she does steal that stuff, which maybe, as you said, is like a bit of a nod to um kleptomania and maybe some underlying mental health stuff going on. She actually, like, remains fairly composed. She doesn't seem too upset or emotional. It's not until, you know, obviously later. So perhaps, as we've sort of already said amongst ourselves, like, she's maybe got this, you know, history of having had some really challenging times. And even though she's kind of got her shit together at the current moment when we meet her, it's quite easy for her to get set off course. Um, And just this like critique from George is enough that sort of pushes her over the edge and then she slowly kind of devolves into needing to go to the clinic. But then even when she's in the clinic, she's still, you know, able to kind of stand up for herself and is accusatory of George and Jerry, but then very quick to take George back you know, when he's kind of being nice for the sake of getting the papers and whatnot. So it's a quite an interesting character and very, very well acted. Yeah, very well done, yeah. I feel like it's probably not her first trip to Woodhaven. I feel mm. like she might have admitted it maybe once or twice before. She looks very at ease there as well. Yeah, yeah, because it's like when you, when you speak to people who've had mental health issues and they've gone to, like, uh, psych wards or anything mm. like that, it takes it's a bit hard for, for them to adjust in mm. regular society and sometimes they might, slip back into those places you know they might need that court that sort of i guess the the word is like comfort of sorts to kind mm. of get their routine back together so they kind of need it and then come back into society yeah. i feel like maybe with retreat she still has a lot of underlying issues that she's trying to resolve and she kind of needs woodhaven to kind of bring her back to the straight and narrow 
Yeah, yeah and I think as well, like speaking about the fact that she's from a family of creatives, obviously not to say one way or the other, this is not in any way meant to be prescriptive, but there is a fairly like strong correlation between people using creative pursuits as an outlet for mental health. So I feel like she's probably, mm-hmm. and especially if all of her family are creatives, is probably a lot more normalized within her like setting to go and seek some help and have some like respite, you know, from the stresses of the outside world by going to Woodhaven and just kind of, you know, taking a break to reassess and settle herself before she goes back into the community. And that's kind of how it seems, you know, she doesn't seem at high levels of distress, but she also sort of seems like she just needs a bit of help to get back on top of things. Maybe she's been through enough bad experiences with, you know, bad relationships or other, you know, other things happening mm. in her life that she, you know, she's got enough self-awareness. She knows that, well, I need to go check in now before it gets to mm. self-destruction or definitely you know, where, where I'm a bit more out of control. So yeah. And, and I mean, that kind of plays into you know, her intelligence and her. Mm. One thing I wanted to raise with you both, why do you think she, she seems very, um, she, she always demands the truth. She doesn't mm. want to be, she doesn't want to be yep. condescended to or, or lied to, you know, in both scenes with George, she demands the truth explicitly. Do you think that's because she has been lied to by previous relationships and she just doesn't, you know, she told herself maybe after her last relationship, I'm never going to be lied to again. I'm never going to be mm. made a fool of again. I need the truth, even if it's harsh. Yeah, uh, I probably, think that, yeah. yeah, I think that you could be definitely onto something there because there seems to be, yeah, like she'd rather take the harshness of truth than deal with someone giving her, you know, feeding her bullshit or being a bit sort of, I guess, manipulative in the way that they package the information. Um, Mm. But it could also potentially be a bit of a way of, you know, it's to me, it speaks of someone maybe with like some, you know, anxiety kind of stuff going on where they sort of need to feel like they're in control of a situation in the same places that they're losing control. So obviously like George is wanting to break up with her, which then brings on her need to like demand truth and honesty, maybe as a way of sort of feeling like she's back in control of a situation. Mm. And I would imagine that that would be something, yeah, that's sort of come from either like family relationships or her own like intimate relationship history where she's just sort of, yeah, been, um, Maybe she's like a, a uh, what's it, like, you know, young in the birth order where she might be like the baby of the family and has been sort of babied or, or cotton wooled in her life. Perhaps she's always been somewhat neurotic and has been kind of swaddled by her family in the past. And now she's sort of, you know, wanting to be this kind of more independent and have it together kind of self where she wants that information. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It seems like intentional assertion, you know, like, mm. this is what I want and I expect it. Because yes. I don't want to be misled. and Come hell or high water, I want the truth. Yeah, and George isn't the kind of guy who'll just deliver the truth to you straight away. He'll always yeah. try and weasel his way out of it. Yeah, she probably knows that George can be a bit slimy and a bit dishonest as well. So she probably knows that even though she doesn't know exactly what George thinks of her until he announces it, she knows, you know, I mean, it's not easy to, it's not hard to perceive that George is being dishonest pretty much all the time. Mm. But I think yeah. she had a sense of that's who he was, you know, throughout uh, their relationship up until the opening scene. And she knows that mm. she's going to be a bit manipulative and a bit of a liar. So yeah. she, goes, she goes to that extra effort to demand the truth just so that she doesn't get played by him. I was just like re- like rerunning that seed in my head while you were talking about it, though, and just like how she quotes the poetry by Thomas Carlyle. And then George is like, oh, uh, Tommy C. Tommy C. <laughs> It just shows how refined He's he really so is. He's so lowbrow. Yeah. Yeah, Tommy well, look, C. I, look, I don't consider myself either lowbrow or highbrow, you know, midbrow maybe. You know, I like uh-huh. some, what some people would consult, call pretentious things, but I also like non-pretentious things. Yes. I have no idea. You're well-rounded. Yeah, I'm, I'm midbrow. <laughs> well-rounded. Culturally, quoted, yes. If someone quoted that to me to uh, to make a point, you know, and she was making a point that art is more valuable than money. That was yes. the point. George was like, is there any money in it? Yeah. Like someone could make that point without quoting Thomas Carlyle and it would be perfectly, you know, appropriate. I would probably think, "Eh, that's a bit unnecessarily pretentious there. But um It is definitely verbose. (laughs) Yeah, she's Yeah, very verbose. She's obviously educated. And look, if that was her, you know, if she was raised in a family of creatives who Mm. valued creativity and more intellectual pursuits growing up, that was probably just 
you know, the standard of or their style of communication growing up. So for her, that's normal. But for someone like yeah. George and most other people, it would come across as a bit pretentious. Or I actually bit, think she'd be a, a really honest. good matching with Kramer. I feel like yeah. they would complement each other <laughs> yeah. quite well. Once yeah. she's out of the ward, or even even if she's still in the ward, Kramer would probably want to see Oh, her. that wouldn't stop Kramer. <laughs> No. no, definitely not. And she's beautiful no as well. Dancing. Like, I definitely, yeah. I'm surprised that she takes George back and that they're dating again, you know, when he says that he's taking her to the poetry reading in the abandoned building. And he's obviously not excited or enthusiastic about it. He's, he's doing it for his mate. Yeah, he's basically just taken her back for the time that she's helping Jerry with the tax stuff and then he's obviously going to dump her again. But I'm surprised that she takes George back after, you know, what he said and all of that sort of stuff. Unless... She actually sees, unless she respects him for the fact that he was so brutally honest, and if that's like such a bottom line for her, honesty above all else, perhaps that's part of the appeal of George is that he said all all of those things. Well, maybe uh, maybe she, while she was in the um, depression clinic, maybe she had like uh, talks with like psychologists and stuff and she Mm. explained the situation and counsellors and maybe they said, well, maybe because George told you the truth, maybe he's like valid, you know, he's, Mm. he's, uh, He's been vindicated of yeah. sorts, so maybe you should just forgive him. Maybe maybe she learns forgiveness in the clinic. Maybe. Mm. I don't yeah. think that, that would yeah. last long, though. You know, no. no, especially not, with not him, around no. George. <laughs> not around George. No. <laughs> she would see. That, she would see that it's just a big, uh, a big, a big fraud. That you know, his his feigning honesty. A big IRS fraud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Tax I mean, she, fraud. She's a she's a auditor, so she would be able to detect fraud and dishonesty. Mm. Yeah, she's probably yeah. used to like dodgy tax evaders, you know, saying. Maybe oh, that's uh, another reason. Yeah, I don't know where that came so, from. Sorry, I was just saying, like, maybe that's another reason why she's so you know thing about getting the truth out of people is because you know. She's probably been lied to a lot, um, not just maybe in her relationship history, but probably through her work and, you know, in mm-hmm. her career and stuff. So maybe that's just something that's like a real point of um, discomfort for her. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, her mm. job was to uncover the truth. So it makes sense that in her personal <laughs> life, she, ex- she expects the truth regardless of how yep. harsh it might be. The truth Nothing is but out the there. Truth. It is. <laughs> a lovely 90s reference there. <laughs> <laughs> a very complicated yeah. woman. But uh, yeah, I really liked Patrice and uh, I can't remember the actress's name. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> fa- fantastic. I, I thought she was uh, Valerie Mahaffey. Mahaffey. Yeah, she, she yeah. was tremendous and, uh, yeah, a wonderful yep. secondary character. And not she's really way um, too, She's great. way too good for George. Like, oh, beautiful, yeah. well-dressed, smart, articulate, great fashion mm-hmm. sense. I love that dress yeah. that she's wearing in the diner. And the yeah, earrings, actually, to be Asia. honest. Somewhere from East Asia. I, I couldn't quite pick it. I, I didn't know if it was Japanese Chinese. or Chinese. I was yep. Chinese, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I Chinese, East Asia. Um, dresses with the little round buttons on the neck it's very Mm -hmm. traditional chinese style but um yeah just beautiful great seemed like a good egg (laughs) and a great character (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, Mm. a quirky a quirky good egg is how we'll summarize patrice yeah Uh, do we have any other points about her no, that's. I think you two have covered it pretty pretty well. Actually, the only other yeah. note I guess I have related to the episode and the character is that I also noted down that it was a female writer for the show. I didn't realize it was her first episode. Um, Elaine but, Pope. Yep. Yeah, but I wondered if the storyline of Patrice was in any way related to personal experiences that Elaine may have had herself. Um, in terms of, you know, bad breakups or people, you know, being dishonest or perhaps, yeah, getting unwanted or unexpectedly harsh truth. <laughs> well, I didn't do the research on the writing process, but I, I assume well, many of the writers take their real life experiences mm. and incorporate them into the plots. So, yeah, yeah. maybe that happened to Elaine. Yeah, mm. maybe yeah. something like that. Just an idea, just a thought. In a lot of shows where the female character, whether they're a lead character or a secondary character, is more complicated. And I would I would argue that, you know, Patrice is maybe, you know, slightly more complicated than a lot of mm. other episode girlfriends um, mm. yeah. in, in the show, uh, you know, in other episodes. And I have noticed that when female characters are more complex, where they have contradictions, where they're, you know, they're, there's an emotional complexity to them. And, you know, when we can, when there's enough- They have depth. depth. They have a lot of depth. A lot of the time, complex women are written by by women, which, you know, makes sense. Mm, yep. They're writing about their own experience and they're probably making up for what they see as a lack of complexity in a lot of female characters written by men. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised yeah. Um, if Elaine- Pope intentionally wrote Patrice to be a bit mm. more complicated than the typical episode girlfriend. Yeah, because she's nothing like someone that Jerry would date, for example. No. no. 
No, she's she's um, she seems she's, quite. You could probably draw a lot of similarities to other episode girlfriends you know, mm, across the nine mm. seasons if you really thought about it. But no one immediately jumps to mind. You know, she's very mm. unique. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Very unique. Yeah. So that was my yeah, last like point. Just no, yeah, a hypothesis. No, Hypothesis. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. Speaking of uh, secondary characters, why don't we talk a bit about uh, Tina? Not much to talk about really, and we have talked about her in previous episodes, but uh, yeah, worthwhile mentioning at least uh, what she does in the episode. Yes, another uh, articulate woman. <laughs> Not. <laughs> She's a bit, no. bit, uh, bit more streetwise and down to earth and uh, <laughs> a bit different to uh, Even more to kooky. The and, uh, Even more kooky, yes. Yeah. Definitely a Kramer, a Kramer girlfriend. A very Kramer girlfriend. Yes. She's played by Siobhan Fallon. Hogan. She was credited as Shabon Fallon in the episode at the time. Uh, she's appeared in the films Men in Black and Forrest Gump, as well as the film The Paper that Stephen and I reviewed way back when, I think last year, the year before, when we did movie reviews, Stephen. Oh, uh, we yeah. reviewed uh, The Paper <laughs> starring Michael Keaton and uh, Marissa Tomei. So if you are on Patreon or you want to sign up, you can go and listen to that one. Yeah, Michael Richards is in that one. Yes, yeah. that's right. He was. Yes, and, and Jason Alexander had a... Oh no, sorry. No, I think it was Jason Alexander. Uh, he had like oh, a cameo. No. What's the one that... Oh, you were thinking Trial and Error with uh, Michael and uh, Jeff Daniels. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Now, Jason Alexander, I think, had a, a, a short scene in the paper. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he played like this crazy guy. Yeah, <laughs> he has a gun. It's really weird. Yeah. Um, but yes, so Ben Shabon was in that one as well. She's also an alumni for Saturday Night Live. She's been in the show in 1991 and 1992. And as I mentioned, this is her second of three appearances on the show. Her first being in season two's The Deal, which Stacey actually was on with us. Yeah. When we talked about that one. And uh, her third and final appearance is in the season five finale, The Opposite. Nice. Yeah, uh, look, there's not really much in this episode in terms of like fleshing out a character. You know, I think in the deal we established that she was a bit left of center. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. grinds Elaine's gears. And mm-hmm. Very much. In many ways in this episode. <laughs> the only thing that really stood out to me is maybe something that is unique to this episode and something we haven't talked about before is uh, when Elaine comes home and she notices that, when Tina notices that Elaine is home, she gives her back her earrings. Like it's mm. not even talked about. Mm. Elaine just holds out her hand and Tina pulls her, her clip-on earrings off and, and hands them back to her. <laughs> So maybe maybe yeah. she's one of those housemates, uh, you know, that eats eats Elaine's food and you know wears their clothes without permission. <laughs> I can imagine it being mm-hmm. yeah. which would yeah yeah, to, and she just takes yeah. Elaine's stuff. Yeah, which would add to Elaine's uh, annoyance of her and desire to move out, you know, which she expresses many, many times. But then the other, on the flip side of that, in the other episode, she gets home from working out or whatever and then goes to the fridge and is like, who ate my cake? Because Jerry eats a piece. Oh, but that was Jerry. That wasn't Elaine. That's true. Yeah. Mm. People, people are hypocrites, Stace. <laughs> oh, no, I'm well aware. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I feel, like, I feel like with Tina, like, because Elaine seems to have, like, you know, the full time job at Pendant Publishing and she earns probably not enough to afford her own apartment in Manhattan, but, you know, enough to pay, I'd say, two thirds of the rent, maybe, maybe mm. a bit more. I think Tina might, maybe she just kind of needed someone yeah, to. Yeah, she's like kind a bit of, of a subletter. She's a bit of a subletter, yeah. So I think Elaine's probably the main leaseholder, like yeah. the main tenant. And maybe Tina's just kind of renting the room and she probably doesn't pay much. Like Elaine just has her just to pay enough to, to get her over. Mm. Yeah, that's probably why. That's probably, maybe that's why she tolerates her. You know that she's mm. kind of essential to to paying the um the rent. Yeah, because we see later in the series where when she works for Peterman Elaine, uh, she can afford her own apartment. So you know yeah. she's obviously had a bigger raise. Peterman pays her well, and uh, she doesn't have her need housemates anymore. No, she's probably happy to pay more rent, even if her salary is the same. She's happy to cover Tina's portion of the rent just to not have any more Tina in her flat. Or <laughs> <laughs> Kramer's seeing her naked. Or Kramer's. Yeah. Or yes. Kramer's. I do love everything. Uh, I do. My favorite bit of this scene is um, it just reminded me of what I, you know, everyone talks about how Michael Richards is such a good physical comedian, and he is. You know, Kramer's mm, physical yes. comedy is next level. But every so often, uh, JLD does some amazing physical comedy. Mm. It's not as over the top as uh, as Michael Richards, but uh, when, when she uh, is, you know, upset a bit um, over Kramer's. How can I go on? Yeah, she's like, how can I go on? And just the way that she moves her body and mm, she's obviously yeah. demonstrating just how like icky she feels. Yeah. Over the yeah, yeah, that's so great. And she's yeah, like, and just- hello. Hello. <laughs> like super awkward okay. and just very like strange. Yeah, I, yeah. I reckon the director probably said to, to JLD, you know, try and make that moment like, mm. you know, like you're really like disgusted by it. or you It's know, like she wants to crawl like- out of her own skin. Yeah, yes. so it feels really like just mm. grossed out. 
like just like skis out. Just like Ugh. it would be like. Well, <laughs> actually, I was gonna say it would be like if you saw me naked, Stephen. But then I probably actually wouldn't care. <laughs> no, I, and then look, Stephen would say, "You know, you got to see me naked," and he'll start stripping. That like, would be know, a different story. Yeah. That, that would <laughs> but when Mr. Johnson is concerned, Stephen, that's a whole other story. <laughs> actually, Stace, I have seen you naked by accident when you when you lived at my house briefly when you moved to Melbourne. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Seinfeldism. You, sun, you were sunbaking in the backyard, and uh, I think I came, I came out to the kitchen, which looks directly into the backyard, and uh, I was like, oh, Stace is out. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm going to get my coffee and go into my room now. You was I naked naked or just topless? Uh, look, I can't remember. I've kind of, you know. <laughs> no offense to you. I've kind of scrubbed it. but No, that's yeah. fair. That's reasonable. Yeah. And then Stace is going to say, how can I go on? How can I, I go, go on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you're right, mate. It's all good. Uh, an unremembered Seinfeld is in there. There you go. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We got one in never. the end. We did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right. Well, that is it for a uh, the secondary characters this week. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll find out where the truth sits in order of episodes we've reviewed so far, and uh, whether any of this week's secondary characters appearing in our top twenty. I I saw her naked. <laughs> He saw me naked. Kramer saw me naked. Well, you know, it was an accident. Who walks into a woman's bedroom without knocking? I want to know. I thought it was a closet. <laughs> Completely naked? Completely naked. Jerry, how can I go on? Alrighty, so that was the truth. Uh, we've obviously talked about Patrice, uh, the complex kooky wonder, and uh, Tina, Elaine's also somewhat kooky housemate. So where do you guys rank the truth in your your lists, your episode lists, character lists? So out of 144 episodes we've done so far, uh, 28 for me. I really enjoyed the truth. Really solid, and I think Patrice was a wonderful secondary character. I'm, I'm sure all three of us can agree on that one. Uh, yeah, it was just really, really great writing. I love George's subplot. I love how Tina came back as well from the deal. It's been like a bit over a bit less than a season since she uh, was in the show. And uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I thought it was really great. Really well done. The, the volcano fun, the Krakatoa fun <laughs> <laughs> kind of made me laugh. I like Jerry's. Uh, Jerry, there was a few smirks in the scenes that he did you know which, yeah. uh, which always makes me laugh um so i love yeah, it, no, I really enjoyed it when you see yeah, them like amusing themselves and also yeah i guess we hadn't talked about it even just that little like subplot of the fact that you know kramer came to ask jerry about donating to the krakatoa fund and jerry only did it to impress elaine right? yeah i like it adds i like how it adds to their backstory Elaine and Jerry. Yeah, yeah trying to impress them. things slightly out of character to sell ourselves as maybe more generous or altruistic than we really are. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, just just to get the others' uh, clothes off, perhaps. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, this episode ranks at number 21, just outside my top. Nice. Top. I love this episode. Yeah, season I think it's great. Two, season two and three mm, are probably my favorite. They are the best. About that. Yeah, look, they're you know they're they're not quite reaching the golden age, but I just love the simplicity of them. They're very. I really yeah. like the early you know, seasons. Me yeah. too. Yeah, I'm starting to really appreciate them since we've done the podcast. Mm. Yeah, they've I used to be like all about season four, five, and six, but now mm. I'm like really loving the, the yeah, season look, two and three. Yeah, yeah, they've just got this sort of like subtle simplicity to them, mm. and um. You know, there's not a lot of moving parts, but it doesn't seem empty or thin. Yeah, there's something about them. I think it's just because they're a bit more down to earth as well makes them yeah. fantastic. There's not as much like obvious comedy that can be relied upon to carry the episode. It you know requires a bit more like subtle stuff to like carry the episode, and I think it really shines in this episode. Yeah, hundred percent. So, in your Stacyometer, mm. where do you rank this episode? That's a good question. So, I guess I would say it's probably like mid to high range out of 144 like I don't know I don't know that it necessarily would get to top 20 or close to top 20 for me like it has for the two of you out of 144 but I would say it would comfortably come in at like a 50 just at face value with the yep. potential for it to go higher like I think there's a lot of good parts in the episode I love the fact that you know that Elaine and Kramer have that weird crossover where he's dating her housemate and he sees her naked that's great you know the fact that Jerry has has gotten George to use his girlfriend to help him with his tax audit is great. You know, the fact that George gives this information and then she loses the papers and he doesn't have copies, like it's all very typical Seinfeld, great writing, great acting. So, yeah, I would say I'd say comfortably maybe like a 30, 30, 40. Yep. Nice. Yeah. nice. Really good. Very high up, yeah. 
I think we're all on the same page. Uh, like you said, Ivan, we all agree that Patrice is a fantastic character. Is she fantastic enough to appear in your top 20? Before we recorded, like when I was trying to figure this out, I was thinking maybe she might just miss out. But uh, upon further reflection, I think she does make my 20, my friend. Uh, I'll probably put her at number 18. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I really liked her. But the more we talked about her, you know, and especially like Stacey's take, obviously different to ours, just adding, fleshing her out and understanding her a bit more, I would I would agree. I, I haven't got a formal position for her, mm. but yeah, probably 18 or 19 for sure. For sure, definitely. Just sneaks in. And uh, Stace, would you, if you had a top 20 or, or, you know, some sort of ranking system, would you put Patrice high up there? I don't think so. I don't know that I would. Yeah. Even though I think the character is like complex and very well acted, I don't find her particularly likable. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like she's not, she doesn't have a huge amount that happens with her in terms of storyline, you know, even in the episode, you know, she's in two scenes and they're great scenes, but not a lot really happens with her in comparison to yep. some of the others. Um, so yeah, probably not in the top 20, but definitely a great character. Yeah, fair enough. All right. That is another week of, but I don't want to be a secondary character. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at bidwabarspodcast at gmail.com. You can check out all of our social media links there in the show notes. You can support us by rating or reviewing uh, any of our episodes which you can get in any podcast app you choose and if you want to leave some kind words that would be amazing and uh, if you feel so inclined you can support us financially too yes on patreon and paypal and patreon you'll get bonus content as well as this week's episode earlier than everyone else that's right and finally we do have our facebook group seinfeldisms it's the biggest seinfeld group on facebook by far uh, we've got awesome things coming up uh, some of those involving kenny kramer which uh, we can't divulge at the moment, but uh, all details will be revealed. So just type Seinfeldisms into Facebook and check it all out. Indeed. All right. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen. I'm the other host, Ivan. And I am the frequently recurring and sometimes in a closet guest host, Stacey. (laughs) Backed by popular demand from some of our fans. (laughs) Thanks for joining it's always a pleasure. Well, uh, even though we're coming up to the end of uh, our podcast, uh, or at least this version of this podcast. I definitely uh, want to come back again before you're done. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, you got plenty of opportunities. Yes, for sure. Something juicy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, yep. need, we need a we need a classic episode to sync up. Yeah, lots of secondaries. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Cool. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you all next week. For what are we doing next week? Next week we're doing the gymnast from season six. Oh yeah, I remember that one. We're gonna eat some eclairs out of the bin. <laughs> well, I don't know if they're vegan eclairs. It was, I'll I'll have to do the eating then if they're uh, non-vegan. <laughs> what a terrible chore! <laughs> what were, a terrible chore! Even if they were vegan, I wouldn't eat them out of the bin. So oh, eat, if it doesn't eat, touch anything, you eat you eat <laughs> no, and I'll just go get a like a non-bin vegan eclair. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> if I had a choice, I'll go buy an eclair. I eat leftover <laughs> yeah. cafe table um, food. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> like when I'm oh, traveling, not that's so much here in Australia, but when I'm overseas, like if I'm sitting at a table and people, because often I think as well, like when you travel, people are even more like people pass with money more freely when you travel. So like you go out to eat, right? And people will order food and then just leave like part of it uneaten. I'll eat those chips yeah. if they're not like, <laughs> not the ones that have been bitten and put back, but like free untouched virgin chips. Yeah. I'm all about it. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> Look, even if something's uneaten, I don't think you could call it virgin food if it's been in a bin. I, no, I just, I, no, no, no. I definitely draw the line at bin food. Yeah. Bin food, yeah. no. Even if it hasn't touched anything like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> but yes, we will talk about the gymnast and its secondary characters next week. And uh, you take care of yourselves and each other during this worldwide pandemic. If oh, I guess that's, <laughs> that is a pandemic, isn't it, worldwide? You take <laughs> care of yourselves and each other. Mr. Worldwide. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next week, eh? Catch you later. Bye. Bye.